Yes, tonight uh, we have a very exciting lineup. In fact, we were supposed to have even a, a more exciting lineup, but of course, we heard that um, the president of South Africa, Mr. Um, Cyril Ramaphosa, he will be addressing or making an announcement at eight o'clock this evening. So we obviously gonna break off this program um, and, uh, of course, listen to the announcement. And then depending how long the president speaks, I mean, we may come back or we may not come back. But, uh, yeah. But for now, I do have a, a very, very special guest in studio tonight. Um, I have a guest that has been around uh, for a very long time during the struggle. And, um, and people, you know, affectionately referred to uh, this particular person as the people's judge. And I have with me tonight, uh, right here in studio, um, none other than uh, Judge Siraj Desai. And um, he is the people's judge, and eventually, I mean, at last, <laughs> he has now decided to, to retire. And of course, he's, he's of the age that he had to almost retire as a judge. But he had a long and illustrious uh, career as a judge. So we want to greet the judge first before we're going to continue. So alaikum, Judge. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi to you and to all the listeners. Okay, shukran for agreeing to come on to the show, Judge. Um, you have been on one of the other radio stations a few days ago, and of course uh, they have their listeners, and of course now you were the listeners of the, the radio of the people, which is the voice of the Cape. Thank you very much for inviting <laughs> me and happy to be here. Yeah. Let me also say this, I'm very happy to be with you. You've been my friend for a long time. <laughs> Thank you, Judge. Uh, that's that's, that's uh, very kind of you. But Judge, you are very well known, you know, especially in Cape South, South Africa. But tonight I'm hoping, you know, we're going to get to learn, you know, what, what was going through your head all this time. You know, you've been an attorney, you've been an advocate, you have been a judge, you've also been an activist, you, you schooled a whole, let's say, a classroom of activists. Um, and so I want to tonight hopefully get into your head. Um, you know, as to what made Judge Siraj decide tick over all these years, you know, going through all the the stages of his life. And I want to start maybe, you know, with, with, with where, where did you start? You know, where did you grow up, in other words? Let, let me just start off by saying this. I grew up in Salt River, and you know what Salt River is. Mm -hmm. I grew up in the restrictive environments of Salt River. And despite that, I became an attorney. And if I remember correctly, I was the first attorney to emerge from Salt River in the 70s. Which road did you stay in? I was born in Durham Avenue. In Durham Avenue. I was born opposite the Wesley Practicing School. But I lived at different stages in Kingsley Road, in Rochester Road, and Fenton Road, where I bought my first house as well. So I've been a part of Salt River for the first half of my life. And also, Judge, what I know about your family is that you, your family was quite instrumental in building the Addison Road Masjid. That's correct, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, that, that goes back to the very roots of Salt River. Mm. My grandfather was a trustee of both the Tennyson Road and Addison Road mosques. And there was some dispute when he came back from Mecca in the 1920s. And that resulted in the Addison Road 
uh, mosque being built. I find myself today as a trustee of that mosque for historical reasons. But uh, we, our family was not simply central to Addison Road, but my grandfather was the secretary of the Tenzin Road Mosque before he went to Mecca and afterwards involved in building the, the Addison Road Mosque. But besides the mosque, you know this Shelley Street uh, premises yes. in Blackpool Hallies? Yes. I, I helped build that hall. I raised the money for that hall to be built together with Muxin Hassan. And others. Morgan. Morgan, as he's known here. <laughs> Morgan is, is a good friend of mine. He doesn't live in Salt River anymore. But we, I followed in my grandfather's footsteps in, in a sense of putting up another building. But his was a more central building to Salt River. Well, the, the, the Shalira Hall is quite an, an illustrious building today. And I mean, lots of community functions happen there. Yes. The, the Cape Malay Choir Board sings there. I mean, it's a, I think it was obviously a. A good move to have that type of venue put up in Salt River. Yes, we did that. I, unfortunately, I had to approach BP South Africa to get the seed money to put up that building. The result of that was that every major function for the next 10 years after that of BP I had to attend. Mm, okay, well, good for you, Jason. <laughs> no, it meant that I met the Duke of Edinburgh at one of their functions. Is it the Duke? Is it? Sorry? Who was the Duke of Edinburgh? The Duke of the Queen's husband. Okay, Prince Philip. Prince Philip, yes. Okay. What I was sitting on the table with the chairman of BP, and as they introduced me, they, they were introducing people as heads of companies. When they came to me, they couldn't, didn't know quite what to say. Mm -hmm. So they said, a human rights lawyer. So I looked at the Duke and I said, I used to be a human rights lawyer. <laughs> a new South African come. The Duke looked. Without blinking an eyelid, he said, Oh, you're out of a job now. And everybody <laughs> laughed. <laughs> so the Duke was quite uh, quick with it. Where, where was he? In South Africa? Yes, time? in South Africa. It was in 1990, late 1994, mm. early 1995, but after democracy. Mm. Uh, judge, you became a judge in 1995. I was the first judge of color from Cape Town appointed to the bench. In fact, Before I, me, Judge Lope was appointed, but he was imported from elsewhere in the country. But I, I, I remember, it's funny that I remember the day when you were, well, the day before you were appointed a judge. And I remember I was briefing counsel on, on the fifth floor. And that's where you sat. At, that's at my chambers floor. were on the fifth floor, yes. I, I, still, I think I, rem I still briefed Donald Jacobs on a matter. And then... I, you came into the into the boardroom, and I asked you, so we're not going to appoint you as judge. And you just gave a smirk, because the very next day you were appointed as a judge. Yes, I knew that. So, uh, anyway, uh, it was quite a, it was a happy occasion for the entire legal fraternity at the time. But just go, before we now get to your judgeship, you know, I'm very interested to know what happened before that, because I do know that you articled for... Dalla Umar, the former Minister uh, of Justice. It's not if I may interrupt you. You know, it's true that I've had very many mentors, but I must acknowledge all the people who played a role in my life. Okay, yeah, maybe we can do that now before we even get to the... Yes. Yeah, I think you so. See, yes. my family, my mother, my father, my uncle, Duli, who was worked at Jutas, uh, my late wife, obviously, Divisor. my children, mm. and of course, my in-laws father-in-law as well, and mother-in-law, they all played a central role in my life. In the 30 years 
of our marriage in their lifetime, they played a key role in my life. And of course, I should not forget my wife's sisters as well, besides my family. They were also part of my extended family. Now, it's true, as John says, uh, John Dunn says, no man is an island and tying himself. I was not an island. Mm-hmm. I'm the product of very many people, and I'm indebted to all of them for the role they played in my lives. Mm. No, excellent. And of course, I mean, family is always very important, especially in, uh, in, in the type of demanding job as a legal uh, practitioner. I mean, people always say that they, they never see you around, but I mean, you certainly still had time for your family. I played a role <laughs> in my family as well, yes, certainly. And they played a role in my life. Yeah. My late wife and my children were central to most of my life as a judge. Excellent. So if we can maybe just jump now to, I know you didn't start your life, your, 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 your work life, as, a, as, a, as an advocate, you started as an attorney, and, uh, as an article clerk. No, before that, I was a shoe salesman. Okay, so where did you work as a shoe salesman? <laughs> when I was a student in Durban, mm-hmm. I worked in my family's shoe shop. I was a very efficient shoe salesman because people like Zach Yakub were my clients. Is it? I used to give them discounted shoes. Mm-hmm. So I have another, I had a fallback position to being a lawyer than to be a shoe salesman. But now, what was your favorite shoe at, at the time? It wasn't a question of a favorite shoe. Mm-hmm. It's a question of the, which was the fashionable shoe for the day. What was the brand? I show ladies' shoes. Yeah. Oh, it was ladies' shoes. Okay. <laughs> and men's shoes, but ladies' shoes as well. Okay, I was thinking about men's shoes now as a brand. What brand was good that time? Barker. Was it Barker? Yeah. Oh, Barker is still You, you will notice that I always wear good shoes. <laughs> and that's a tribute to my poor past. <laughs> okay, excellent. So, yeah. So, Jessica, now, so after the shoe salesman, as when, where did you study? I studied the Durban Vessel, mm-hmm. started off at Salisbury Island, and don't ask me why. I started off there because the Separate Universities Act was very much in force then. Mm-hmm. I was compelled, despite being from Salt River and off Cape Town, born and bred here, I was compelled to study in Durban because of my ethnic origins. I could not even go to UWC. But but UWC probably didn't have a law faculty at the time. They did have, because it's on preceded me. Okay, oh, you were there. Were, they were at UWC. They were all the, Dickiness Herodine was there. Okay. That's my exact contemporary. They, they did have a law faculty. Uh, but, uh, but we were compelled to study in Durban because of my ethnic origins. But look, yeah, it, it's worked out, it worked out fortuitously for me because that era in Durban saw the flickerings of social change in the country. Steve Biko was there, Rick Turner was there, Sats Cooper was there, Praveen Gordon was there. These are my contemporaries with whom I interacted. And they all contributed to my social consciousness and development. Oh, excellent. So, so you're saying that uh, you were forced basically to go to Durban. I was compelled to go to Durban. But I mean, today that you got, you surely don't regret that today. I mean, no, I don't regret it because we were a generation in protest. Mm. And that shaped, although I didn't learn much law there, I learned other things besides law in Durban. And, and, and I grew up, I matured politically, and my consciousness developed while a student in Durban. Okay. And okay, so now obviously you got involved with politics. I mean, everyone obviously that was actually too busy with higher learning of color at the time had to have some form of political schooling. But we're going to get to that, uh, Judge, in a few minutes. We're just going to go quickly go for an ad break.
The Legal Hour with Ihsan Higgins. And we are back with the legal hour, and I've got with me uh, Judge Raj Desai, and uh, who's now uh, gone into retirement. And we now can we're just talking about the life and times of of Siraj Desai, and um, yeah. So we're just continuing now with the discussion that we're having. And uh, the last question was Judge about that uh, about the the lawyers that played the role in my life. Yes, the lawyers that played. You know, role. you know, Exxon, I started off. Here in, well, not here, in Athlone, mm-hmm. in 19, March 1976. The Esa Musa was my real principal, but I was, my articles were registered in the name of a chap called Douglas Rowland Gallant. Mm-hmm. And uh, because Esa couldn't practice in Athlone because he was also Indian. Okay. So Esa was a PA on the staff. So I learned my, the fundamentals of law from Essa in the, my first few months in practice. But that firm closed down at the end of that, that year. But it was the year of the 76 uprising. So Essa was very active and we accumulated a number of public violence trials which were pending. So the closure of the firm left us in a very awkward situation. This is the, the Galant firm, the Gallant. Uh, yeah, he, was, he wasn't Galant, he was Douglas Rowland Gallant. Gallant is, was, okay. But we call him Gallant. <laughs> one L. He called himself Doug. He was stuck of the role, incidentally, mm-hmm. after that. But then what happened was that the, that year, Dala Uma, Uma was a friend of our family, came to Esa's office and they made an arrangement. And then I walked with 90 public violence file from Esa's office to Dala's office. And Dallas office was also in Athlone. Now Dallas offices, all the laws would stop down the road here. Mm-hmm. And then when I went, oh, is that that, that, that office opposite Rudablum Road? Opposite Rudablum Road. Okay, it's, I think that the sign is still up there. No, it's sign of a new firm. That of a new over. firm, but they, but there yes. hasn't been a law firm for many years. There hasn't been. Oh. Hats being made there, and then thing. I always say we should make that into a historic monument, that building, oh. because that building in the seventy-six eighty uprising was central to what was happening in the country. And then the 7th of January 1977, I started with Dalla. And uh, after that, it was just the, my life was a roller coaster ride. The very first or second day, I was in court defending people. And I didn't stop defending people until 30 June 1995 when I became a judge. <laughs> so a continuous period of decades, mm. I defended people. I started off with defending a little boy who threw a stone at a police vehicle. The last major trial I did as an, as an advocate was to defend the person who shot up 30 people or 11 people in the St. James Massacre. But I wasn't briefed to do that case. I did that pro deo. The then judge president of the Cape asked me to do that case. But uh, I did it on pro deo rights, but he gave me special rights. Now, I understand the pro deo, but well, I mean, obviously, uh, the community, they were outraged that, you know, this thing had occurred. Well, there are always two sides to community. That's why I'm asking you the question. There's a PAC. Mm-hmm. This is a PAC. In fact, one of the leading members of the ANC stopped me on the road mm-hmm. and told me, why are you doing that case? Those are PAC people. But it was an APLA case. Yeah. yeah. So it, I told me that's a stupid question. Mm-hmm. But what did happen, what 
I did, it did, that case caused me a great deal of anguish mm-hmm. because the people were shot at prey. But I went to the two most people I respected the most. My late father, without blinking an eyelid, said, do the case. It is your job. Mm-hmm. And my late father-in-law put a tape. I went to him and I told him, I've got this case. This case involves shooting up people in the church. He says, it's your job, you do it. But that tape was on book up, eh? That's right, yeah. Okay. And both were very pious men. Mm-hmm. So they had the in- intellect to make a decision of that sort. And that gave me the strength to do that case. That case ran for six months. The first three months before the confession was improperly obtained. And I had the confession excluded. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the time was set on actual physical evidence by which damned my client in a sense. He was 18 years old for the 11 murders. Quite kindly, the judge gave him 25 years. He couldn't hang him because of the death penalty because he was 18 years old. But the judge was Robin Murray, the most decent judge you could get. And, and then a few years after that, the accused came to see me when I was a judge because he had been released on amnesty. He only did a few years. Mm-hmm. And he came to see me in my chambers. But the story has an unfortunate ending in that although he was released, he was later caught in a heist and he's now doing a life sentence at one of the prisons in this country. Okay, well, so that ends that poetic justice justice to him. (laughs) But I did my best, I did my duty, my conscience was clear and I had the support in that difficult moment from members of the family which I respected Judge, the Judge, I'm glad you're raising this issue because I think a lot of people have this idea that judge that, that, that lawyers lie on behalf of their clients, which is really you not never the case. Lie. Now, but this is the thing I wanted to clarify that because here you you were defending somebody who was clearly guilty of a situation that that uh, the murders of the people in St James, but your task obviously was to make sure that his rights was upheld. So maybe you can explain that part. Yes, you see, lawyers don't lie. Sometimes they do. You know, I must confess, I want, I lied once. Let me tell you in what context. <laughs> do you remember uh, Josiah Jobe, Ismail Jobe? You don't remember him. He was a leading District 6 act- activist. He was caught with six bottles of paraffin in bottles, and they were going to Milnerton to blow up something in the in the uh, in the mid 80s and he was then caught he he took the rap on himself and he was part of islamic jihad or jihad international something like that that's the organization mm-hmm. and he took the rap on himself and let his the people with him off the hook and he was given two years imprisonment as a johnny de lange so what did you lie about no no, I'll tell you, I'm coming to that. <laughs> okay. So he, he, he appeared in court and Johnny DeLange defended him and he got two years imprisonment. And then I did the appeal. I appeared before judges Sharky King and Bram Latigan. And the minute I started arguing, I could see the bench was split. Sharky wanted to suspend the sentence and Bram wanted to confirm the sentence of imprisonment. You must remember, here's a man caught with bottles of paraffin a Molotov cocktails mm-hmm. in a crude sense but he took the rap and he said he was going to blow up these places but he changed his mind so he was driving back so in between after this now I could see the bench itself is 
uh, not uh, uh, split on the issue. Eventually, Judge Latakhan says to me, Mr. Desai, um, it looks to me as if your client was very naive. He said in Afrikaans, your client was very naive. I stood up and I stood up and I said, Jeltemali and Lachbara. You know, the client was. Mm-hmm. If you look at the history books today, the client was Tatamkulu Africa, the poet. Mm-hmm. Ismail Jobeir was Tatamkulu Africa, the very sophisticated poetry that emerges from that period. Mm. To say that he was, to concede that he was naive was a lie. Mm. But I had to do it under those circumstances. And, and, and but that sort of situation one can understand in the context of struggle. But Latakhan was the hanging judge, wasn't he? He was, yes. Yeah, he so was the judge that used to hang people. No, 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 not he never hanged him. But no, no, I'm saying he, had he a was propensity a, he, to him. He sentenced Let's put it this way. Him. In later life, was my friend, we shared the bench together. Mm. But he had a propensity to hang people in the hanging day, to give. Now, let's put it differently. He had a propensity to impose death sentences. Yes. Now, uh, I remember there was an article written about him being the hanging judge. That was around about the late 80s. I think I was still at high school yes. at the time. And I read that article, and I never forgot yes. that name. That Dennis <laughs> Davis wrote that article. Oh, okay. And they never spoke to each other. I mean, although I got on very well with... Uh, Jalatakhan, when we sat together, he didn't want to speak to Dennis Davis because Dennis Davis referred to him as the hanging judge. And um, this is quite interesting what this listener said here now. Firstly, he says, If nobody ever told you, this is to you, judge, I am expressing it now. Thank you for taking the Apla case. Okay. <laughs> so that's the one thing. And then he says, don't refer to the judge as lying. The judge was presenting his client's version. It's brilliant. <laughs> I no, I agree to that, but uh, it wasn't... It wasn't his version. I, I, it was I, his I, own I, version. <laughs> it was, no, but it was, I mean, to, to say, when I knew that Ismail Jubey mm. was a highly sophisticated and uh, comrade and an activist, so... But I, I, you see, in those days, the law was against you. The weight of the law was against The system was against of you. Course, yeah. So sometimes when I had to do, uh, make concessions which or make submissions which are not entirely correct. But to say that lawyer lies is incorrect. I mean, I defended many people. I just simply put their versions the best they could. But the most difficult on that issue of uh, presenting to court was I defended the gentleman who was still very much around who put the bomb outside the Weinberg Magistrates Court. Mm-hmm. Remember, they came along, uh, Berghi came along and interfered with the uh, waste paper basket where the limpet mine was mm-hmm. and blew himself up. Mm-hmm. The accused did not want to put up a defense. And in those days, we were face, facing the death penalty. So I defended him with my hands tied behind my back with no version. Mm-hmm. But I motored along and put in sufficient mitigation for him eventually not to get the death penalty. Incidentally, in later years, he was the bodyguard to President Thabo Mbeki, and he's still a good friend of mine today. Judge, but he never, he never wanted to put up a version to lie as to what happened. Judge, there was also the incident that I remember, that we, and I'm not going to mention the name of the person, but one of the Salt River guys, you know, people that, that grew up in Salt River, was sentenced to death. Yes. And then you intervened, and you obviously got, got him off death row. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, you see what happened? Oh, no, you see, it's difficult to tell a story without 
giving the names of the no, parties. No, you don't have to give the names. But I, 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 saw him, I saw him on death row. Mm-hmm. And uh, my father, he knew my father very well because he was from Salt River. And my father gave me, wrote on a piece of paper in Arabic, something, and said, time six. So when I saw him on death row, I asked him, I took his instruction, told him what we're going to do, and how we're going to get him off. And he was half listening to me because of the restrictive circumstances of death row. You know, in de- those days on death row, you could only see people through a glass barrier. You couldn't, didn't have body contact. And then as I was leaving, he says to me, Vatseri O. Vatseri O. Oh, then it struck me. He meant, what does my father say? Mm-hmm. Oh, then I remembered that my father had said something. So I took the paper out of my pocket and I showed him uh, the dua, which is actually, I didn't know it then, but it's the dua that I showed him. And in later years, when he was eventually released, mm-hmm. and one of the first things he did when he got released, he didn't come see me, he never came to thank me, he went straight to my father. <laughs> he absolutely believed that what my father had told him got him off and saved him from death row. The power of dua. And he was also <laughs> then... One of the, you know, in those days, if you were on death row, you couldn't get bail. If you, uh, you had to get monetary bail. You couldn't just get free bail. When we succeeded in having the leave to appeal granted, the court granted him one rand bail. He's the only person ever on death row to get one rand bail. Mm-hmm. Eventually, he was acquitted as well. Yeah, well, that, that family became quite... Uh uh, reformed in their conduct. They always were. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm friend. talking about the sons, the, the yeah. ones that were. I mean, they they are actually an asset to the community now. Yeah. Up to well, the one passed away now, and yeah. the other one is still around. But judge, that the, what year was that? That would have been in 1988. Okay, now I must tell you, because my dad is also from Salt River. Yes, of course. And of course, my dad followed that case. He knew the family very well. Of course, well. he knew. Yeah. And uh, he being the chairman of the soccer and all that. So after he told me that long story about how you saved uh, this gentleman from death row, I must tell you that was one of the stories that actually inspired me to become an attorney. Because I also wanted to get people off death row. (laughs) Unfortunately, well, fortunately, the death row was abolished before I became an attorney. Let me tell you, interrupt you on that. (laughs) On that day that I went to death row, I took Bash Wagley with me as a young article clerk. Mm-hmm. After that, he gave up criminal law forever. <laughs> he became a labor lawyer. <laughs> he's a leading labor lawyer, labor judge well, today. he's now the, uh, the, the judge president of the labor yeah. court. Mm. So it's not always that it works out when you see the criminal law in its crudest form. Mm. But I, I must tell you this also, that one of the, and probably you shouldn't tell you all my stories, I should keep some for my biography. Well, 200,000 people are listening right now. <laughs> I, I was one day in Salt River, I grew up, and you know, in Salt River, in Kingsley Road, there was a window ledge that faces the pavement. And I was sitting on the ledge when I was seven years old. I remember this incident. A guy rang past and pulled my leg and I fell. At seven years old, you faint. It's the first time I remember fainting. I knew this boy. It is a, he was a naughty fellow in Salt River. They say it was in his takdeer to be a regional member, as to say, in Salt River in those days. And then when I first became an attorney and I'm walking in the cells in Cape Town, I meet the same guy. And he 
he comes to me and he greets me warmly and he says, you know, he grew up with me and will I get him out on bail? I toyed with the idea of leaving inside, but my goodness, time <laughs> I got him out on bail. <laughs> That's the problem of growing up in Saltro. Mm, I guess. Uh, we're going to go on a quick ad break once again, Judge, and then uh, when we come back, we're going to talk more about your, your, your professional life uh, as a attorney before we get to the advocate part. And we are back with the legal hour with Judge Desai uh, in my in studio. Um, Judge, we are going to break for Maghrib within seven minutes. So, of course, I need to 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 to, to amp up the, the the speed of this program because the intention is to come back after the president's speech at eight, at eight o'clock. But I don't know. You might speak for an hour, and then we're not going to get back. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm hoping he's going to make it short and sweet so that people know exactly what the future holds uh, in, the, in the next coming weeks. But coming back to Judge, this, I just want to bridge the gap quickly between your articles. I mean, you said you were with, um, with Dalla Omar at some point, but you were also, artic- you were also the de facto person was Isam Wursa that taught you your, 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 your law during articles. So at what point, how long were you practicing as an attorney before you became an advocate? Let me say this, that I practiced, we were a, probably, we had the largest per capita practice ever in this country. Thousands of people walked through our doors. Everybody was, legal services given given almost free to everybody. Mm. It was in the heat of the uprising, 70s and 80s. Many people in Cape Town walked through those doors. It was not simply from all political spectrum, all sides of the political spectrum. But it was a particular privilege to work with Dalla. Dalla was a scientific lawyer, cold scientific. But in my first two years, I also worked with the late Benny Keys, who was a stalwart of struggling this in the Cape and one of the leading left-wing theoreticians of the Cape, founder, founding and leading member of the non-European unity movement. I was I had the misfortune in 1979 as a young attorney to be his instructing attorney in a terrorism case in Worcester. And the case was run in Hermanus on the 19th of December 1979, when in the middle of the trial, while arguing the admissibility of a confession, he collapsed and died. Mm-hmm. Now, you must remember the psychological moment in the middle of one of the biggest political trials of that time, but the most prominent senior counsel, well, senior junior counsel of that time, a family friend and ideological leader drops dead in front of me. So first day I got the front page news in the Cape Times under those circumstances. So he died in your presence? He died sitting next to me. He had brain aneurysm. I had to phone Dalla and everybody else. And Dalla then was ill with his second heart attack. You know, Dalla mm. had a few heart attacks while he was in practice. So there's a whole lot of confusion. So there was a bit psychological moment. But besides that, it was the men I learned real law from. I did not practice law as they did. Dalla was cold, scientific. Ben was a tall, imposing man, and he chose his questions carefully. I was from the 76th generation. I mauled, I went into the ring and battered the witnesses. Mm-hmm. I, I always say my system was more successful than theirs. But they were intelligent, highly intelligent men who understood the law. Dalla used to tell me in later years when we were advocates together, uh, he goes to court with me and says, Dice, you be yourself. He used to call me Dice. You be yourself. 
In other words, I be I had to be rough up the witness, and he tried to pick up the pieces. There are different types of legal practice, as you know, uh, but that was very my style. And I found my style to be very successful, and I got many people to quit it. So how long did you practice at the South So I was, a, I was an attorney, and I was a professional assistant to Dalla. And when Dalla came back after his illness, the second illness, I think it was, then I left and I joined the bar. I was simply getting bored uh, being doing the legal, uh, legal practice at the side bar. It's the best decision I made in my life, because very quickly I picked up a practice at the bar. And then Dalla joined me a year later at the bar. And they be often appeared together in political cases. But what we did not anticipate was that in the mid-1980s, we'll pick up uh, from 1984 onwards, there would be, be lots of work throughout the country for all of us. And I appeared in Cape Town, Beaufort Base, Ellsworth, Port Elizabeth, Grahamstown, Kimberley, and in northwest uh, Old Paputatswana. I did cases everywhere. I defended people in political cases. I defended people in, uh, in, in necklace murders. All sorts of people were prosecuted for offences against the system. It was a long but very illustrious career at the bar. I worked with some of the leading advocates of our time. I worked with, in Cape Town here, with the Harold Devi, who later became a, magis- a judge in Southwest Africa or Namibia. I worked with uh, Milton Seligson, who's still around, was then already a leading senior counsel. For one wonderful day, I worked with Sidney Kentridge. I worked with Dennis Cunha on many occasions, Joburg Council, and I worked with many other advocates throughout the country. I also worked on my own. Of course, I worked with Louis Cunha and Justice Poswa and Pius Langer, and th- that was our team out in the Eastern Cape, which we did a number of cases together. Judge, quickly, are we, we're going to have to break in two months, but quickly, where does the, the, the nickname Dice comes from? You said no. Oh, very simple. One day, in, in those days, they were, they used to transport their political cases. The apartheid government was niggardly in the things it did. So as to avoid crowds attending a, a case, they used to shift cases to, out, to outside of Cape Town. So they shifted this case out to Malmesbury. So our task was to make sure that the family of the accused got to Malmesbury to hear the, the trial. And there was a man, his name was, I still remember his name, his name was Sibyl Luningo. And his father, I don't know whether Sibyl Luningo was the father of the son, but one of them uh, was supposed to travel with us to Malmesbury. And we he didn't pitch up on time, so we moved on to Malmesbury without him. He comes later to the office, and then he says to uh, Mr. Omar, Dala, Dala, Mr. Omar, wait, I'm looking for Mr. Dice. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Dala then dictated messages to me, Mr. Dice, make better arrangements with Mr. Leningo next time. <laughs> but fortunately or unfortunately, Percy's son mm-hmm. saw that letter. Percy was a peer and our staff as well. Mm-hmm. And Percy started laughing. Everybody started calling me Dice. So if, if somebody calls me Dice, I knew he knew me in practice. Mm-hmm. But if somebody called me by some other nickname, I knew I was on campus with him. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the, my nicknames, 
identify the stages of my life. Okay, Chad, so I, I call you Chad, so this is your stage, this is the stage of your life. So we're going to, uh, on a break now for Maghrib, and of course, when we come back, we're probably going to get to the stage where the president is going to speak at 8 o'clock, and depending on how long he speaks, we're going to come back uh, just to speak about the latter stage of your life. Thank you. So we still got Judge in studio now, and uh, Judge, just in a uh, closing for tonight, you know, we're not going to get into all those other uh, items that, you know, that I would have wanted to get into. But just in terms of your, your thoughts at the moment on the, on the future of the justice system. I mean, it's the justice system has been in the news for the wrong reasons for, 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 for you know, for forever. And I mean, at the moment we have like a, well, we have the Zondo Commission happening, which is not really a scrutiny on the justice system, but of course we always see the judiciary involved, some of lawyers involved. We have Judge Shlopi, who's undergoing a current um, inquiry. So, yeah, what is, does, what's the future of the Let, let me provision? say this right at the beginning. I'm not at liberty okay. to comment on the Judge Shlopi issue because he's my boss and he remains my boss. Of course. Although I'm in the final retirement. Uh, that's a different issue that will sort itself out through okay. the processes. Mm -hmm. I know it's taken a long time, but ultimately sort itself out. No, but I want to speak about the, the, the future of the legal profession. Yes, now I'm coming to that. Mm. You see, it's fundamental to the legal profession that all who participate in it uphold its ethical practices. And that's where we've fallen short. You can't conceivably have a judge was the hint of impropriety in the sense that he has, has shortfall in his trust account before he becomes a judge. And that's so fundamental that, 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 that the public could lose confidence in the judiciary. If you know that you've been dishonest, who would have faith in a judge in his, in his uh, dispensing justice? That sort of thing must under no circumstances recur. That the the Judicial Service Commission and the judge's president must make sure that the person of highest integrity are appointed to the bench. Coupled with the integrity is not everybody who wants to become a judge that must become a judge. There must be people with sufficient experience who become judges. But that experience is an elastic concept. It's not simply knowing the law. But we also have people rooted on the ground who become judges, who understand what the ground looks like when they become judges. It's very easy to misdirect yourself as to what justice should look like if you're rooted in some airy fairy land. That has been the problem of justice, not simply here, but throughout the world. The judges represent the ethical values, the norms of the class in which they come from. Judges inevitably come from the ruling class, the ruling party in a country and they represent the values of that class South Africa marks if it has to mark a change with its past it must continue on the past path of appointing people who come from the soil of this land who understand what this country is all about it's not sufficient simply to know Cicero and Justinian it must know the people of this country that may be a radical point of view in a sense but I think I would have been a poorer judge had I not come 
from Salt River and Street and known what the streets of Salt River look like or what the streets of Athlone look like. Now, Judge, do you believe, now, I mean, you're now obviously retiring from active duty as a judge, but do you believe that the judiciary has transformed? The judiciary has transformed in the context of colour. When I joined the bench, as I said right at the beginning, I was the second person of colour on the bench and the first local person of colour on the bench. The rest of the bench was all white. That is no longer the situation today. The bench is now a hodgepodge of colours and and uh, people of different orientations that sit on the bench. But that has not meant a change in the value of our judges. Some of the judges still represent the value systems of old. No, that's so if there has been a transformation, it has been, in a sense, perfunctory, because we were under pressure to change the colour of the bench. What we failed to do was to point people to the bench who understood the demands of society today, who understood what justice means in the 21st century, what justice means to the poor in this country. And that, that's been one of the failures of our transformation process. If you ask me a blunt question, as a judiciary transform, I'd say yes in terms of colour. Mm-hmm. As a judiciary terms in the terms of its quality of justice for the poor, I would say no, it has not. And, and that's a that's a pity because I mean of course I mean it's so so it's paying lip service to transformation because of course when you when I speak about transformation, it's not about changing the 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 the, the, the complexion from from white to black, it's really changing the the the, the thought process the jurisprudence, the the moral the mores or the morality of the uh, of the there's judiciary. a difference between. Jurisprudence and morality, mm-hmm, that's or, or mores. The judges are very uh, conscious of the jurisprudence. They have developed the, the jurisprudence in a constitutional state, but they've been incapable of transforming justice to advance the interests of the overwhelming majority of the people in this country who are poor. You must remember, we are one of the most unequal societies in the world. What has what what have judges done to address that? In they can't do so on their own, obviously, mm-hmm. because they don't they're not uh, forces for change in the ordinary sense of the word. They're not a motive force in history. But have they changed the value system of old in the sense of preserving class interests? My own view is yes. Inevitably, they've just simply preserved the class interests of the wealthy. The property owning class. Yeah, of course. Judge, unfortunately, you know, I would have loved to have this uh, discussion with you deep into the night in terms of, you know, the jurisprudence and the morality of judges, you know, sitting on the bench, despite the color and despite the the apparent transformation. But I do believe that uh, we, 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 we actually going to, we must stop this conversation now because I think this type of conversation is going to filter into those decisions that you've made sitting as a judge. Yes. And, uh, and I want to get to things like, you know, the, 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 the judicial activism where you actually went against the, the morality of the past 
and adopted a new type of morality in your judgments. And I want to get not to morality, models, model value system, perhaps. Uh, that's debatable whether yeah. it is a moral system or morality. Yeah. Because uh, sometimes the, the 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 morality of a judgment is lacking, yeah. and uh, and and but we'll debate that when we talk about the the the, the judgments that you've actually delivered yes, of uh, since uh, post constitution. So, Judge, that's all we have time for tonight. Shukran very Thank much. Thank you very for, much. Uh, I see Buta Yusuf walking in this. Alamata Yusuf. <laughs> So, um, Judge, shukran for coming in. We hopefully, inshallah, next week we're going to continue, uh, but we're going to jump immediately. In-